0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Grandpa Jimmy, your host, and you're listening to the Family and Stories podcast coming to you from Colorado Springs. And we have a powerful, powerful story today. What happened to my guest was catastrophic enough, and surviving it was nothing short of a miracle. He's going to tell you about that devastating accident, but it's what happened after the accident that's really remarkable. It's really a story of God's grace it's my privilege to welcome Jeff Bardell. Welcome, Jeff.
1: Grandpa Jimmy, I'm glad to be here. I really appreciate this opportunity.
0: Well, you're, you're more than welcome, sir. With, tell us a little bit about your
1: family. To start with, I, have, I, I hate to, to break the news to everybody out there, but I have the most beautiful wife on the planet. Um her name is kelly I, I think when people see us, they think that i that she must owe me money or something um to marry me uh because she's so far out of my league. we're playing different sports uh We've been married um almost five years now um and have three beautiful girls uh Lily is fifteen she'll be sixteen coming up uh, Kenley um is our middle, and she just turned seven yesterday. And then my little baby is Tessa, um, and she is three, and she will be four in April. Um, so I am vastly outnumbered here.
0: There you go. <laughs> That's
1: a good thought. I love it.
0: <laughs> well, something happened to you. I think when this accident happened, weren't you like about 18 years old or so?
1: Yes, sir. I was 18 years old, um, a recent high school graduate.
0: And so tell us where you were and what happened.
1: I was um, in my hometown of Larnburg, North Carolina. Uh, There were me and about seven other college students who were either already college students or soon-to-be college students who were working at a glass factory in my hometown. We were hired to do the work that nobody else wanted to do. They called us the rats because we went into the places of this glass factory that nobody else wanted to go into. We were in the dirtiest parts of the factory. And our job was basically to try to clean up the place that it, it looked like nobody had cleaned up for as long as the plant had been open, which had been 20 some odd years at the time. So one of our jobs was raking glass out of the bottom of a furnace. There's the a process when you're making glass where they'll run it through a furnace, and if there are any imperfections, the glass will shatter um, and fall to the bottom of the furnace, so they would hand us these sh- these long rakes where we would rake glass out of the furnace. so we'd been doing that for the first eight days. ninth day they sent us out to a different area of the factory, an area called the silo, and this is kind of where the whole glass making process started. What our job t- was was to clean up. Uh, this powdery substance that had gathered on the floor. And so this powdery substance had actually packed down um, until you actually would use shovels to bust this debris up on the floor, loading it in, loaded into wheelbarrows. From there, we would run the wheelbarrows from our job site to this machine called a screw auger. We would dump the debris into the auger. And when we dumped it into the auger, it would go up the, shoot of the auger and dump into a dumpster on the opposite end. <clears throat> for those listeners out there, and you don't know what an auger is, because a lot of people, you know, unless you work around farms and or in heavy machinery, a lot of people aren't aware of what augers are. It's basically a giant screw with the casing that goes around the outside of it so that when you dump debris, a lot of times it's used for grain and stuff like that on a farm.
0: Drilling into the ground, you see augers drilling holes for post holes, things like that. Sure.
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So what we were using it for was we were dumping the debris into this auger, and the debris would get caught in the threads of the auger, and it would push it up this chute and then dump it into a dumpster on the opposite end. This was my first day working with this piece of machinery. I was now the guy standing at the base of the auger, and again, my job is make sure everything goes down okay. The only thing is they didn't say, if it doesn't go down okay, this is what you do. They just said, make sure it goes down okay. So the very first load we did when we came back from lunch, a guy that I played baseball with my entire life, he comes, dumps a load into the auger, and he turns around and goes back to the job site. I'm standing there, and I'm watching the debris go down, and then there's one piece that's too big there was supposed to be a grating over the opening of the auger so that when it got dumped in um pieces that were too big wouldn't fit through that grating but that had been removed because they said it slowed the machine down too much so when that piece of debris finally made its way to the to the auger itself it was too big to go down into the the threads of the auger So I started looking around for anything I could use to bust that piece of debris up with, but there wasn't anything there. And the only thing I'm thinking is my job is make sure everything goes down okay. So what I decided to do was reach in and grab that piece of debris, take it out, bust it on the ground, and then I was going to pick the pieces back up and put it back in the auger. We had on these gloves that were called gauntlet gloves, which were basically safety gloves. There's kind of some irony in that statement coming up, but there was, um, so when I reached in to grab that piece of debris, the thread of the auger caught the corner of my glove. I felt a tug when when I grabbed it, and I immediately jerked back as hard as I could, trying to get my hands free, and my left arm came out fine and my right arm didn't, and what had happened was that, like I said, the auger barely caught the corner of my glove by probably a quarter of an inch, and I'm yanking as hard as I can trying to get my hand free from my glove, and there was nothing that I could do, so the auger was rotating, and as it rotated, it started pulling my hand into the machine. It ended up wrapping my arm Around the inside of the auger, <clears throat> I started screaming one because it hurt, and two because I wanted somebody to come turn the machine off. Because I, at this point, I had been picked up off the ground and was being pulled into the machine. One of my coworkers who was standing at the opposite end of the auger, he heard me screaming. He came and visited me when I was in the hospital. And he said, "When I turned around and looked, he said you were about halfway into the machine already." So he ran down a flight of stairs, got the machine turned off, and at this point, I was about six inches from being completely into the machine—six inches to a foot from being headfirst into the machine. When he got it turned off, I was holding on to the outside of the machine with my left arm, trying to slow my my descent into this machine. And so, when he got it turned off, <clears throat> I pulled myself out, and when I did, my right arm was gone.
0: My oh, goodness.
1: As you can imagine, it was a a very shocking and traumatic experience. The guy that turned the machine off, he's standing there staring at me, and then he just turns around and takes off running. And I didn't know where he was going, but I knew I didn't want to be by myself, so I took off running after him. Not the smartest thing to do when you're already losing a lot of blood is to really get your heart pumping faster to get that blood pumping faster. Um, but I just knew that if I stayed there, I was going to die.
0: So, so you're actually talking about yeah. your arm was ripped off where, just below your shoulder?
1: When I pulled myself out of the machine, my arm was missing about two inches above my right elbow.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: It was, it was missing. I, I looked down and saw it, and it was – I saw things that you, you don't want to see in a movie, much less in real life. And so, as we were running, I'm like, I don't know where we're going. But then I remembered there was an office that was roughly 75 yards, 50 to 75 yards away. And so I'm like, well, I'm not sure where he's going, but that's where I'm going. So we ran through the bottom of the silos, um, up a flight of stairs, and there was this door at the top of the stairs. And the guy, he got there before I did. He opens the door, and I just ran by. Him. And I went um, over to the office, and there was a large Uh, plate glass window into the office. And so I ran up to the office and I just stood there looking in, you know, I had never had an arm ripped off by a machine before, so I didn't really know what to do. Um, (laughs) I (laughs) I was in a little bit of shock as you can imagine. And so when I got to the window, I just stood there looking in. I didn't knock on the window. I didn't open the door of the office and say, Hey, do you have a band aid or anything like that? I just stood there at that window looking in. Thankfully, the guy, there were three guys in the office and they saw me and one of them called for help while the other, one of the other guys came out and he actually tackled me to the ground, which I thought was a little rude. Um, but he told me later, he said, I was scared that if I didn't get you on the ground, you were just going to take off running again. He said, because you were in such shock. So at that point, he gets me on the ground. Um, they started handing him paper towels and he just started wrapping my arm in paper towels, just doing anything he could to slow the blood loss. Um, one of the next people that got to me was actually the last baseball coach I ever had. When he got there, he was had been in the Navy and you know, he learned some things in the Navy. And so what he did was he stuck his hand up inside of, not inside of my arm, but he basically turned himself into a human tourniquet. He grabbed underneath my arm and just squeezed as tight as he could, trying to slow the blood loss. And he also, when he did that, he had knelt down beside me, and he plastered his knee up against my cheek so that I couldn't look to the right even if I wanted to, And I'm sure part of it was he didn't want me to see my arm anymore because I'd seen enough. And he probably didn't want me to see where he was about to grab because I was already in an excruciating amount of pain. And so with him grabbing there, he knew it was going to be painful and he wouldn't want me to jerk away. But it ended up playing a a part of my story that I don't always talk about because I couldn't look to my right hand side, even if I wanted to, because of where his knee was up against my cheek. One of the next people that got there was my dad. He, when he got there, I saw him appear from, he just appeared from a, over my coach.
0: Now he, he worked there. Is that correct? Your dad worked there. That's why he was there so quickly.
1: Right. My dad had been the one that got me the job. When he got there, he was in a meeting in the front office. And somebody told him there's been an accident at the silos. They made an announcement in this meeting that he was in. And so he jumped up and, and took off running immediately. And and the, the amazing thing is, is, you're going through this traumatic experience and you're like, why does it have to happen? But when you look back on it afterwards, you can see where God showed up. Because my dad was running out of this meeting. And he said that as he pushed these double doors open to leave the meeting, he said, Please, God, don't let it be Jeff. And he said, At that time, God spoke to him in that still small voice and said, Who do you want it to be then? So he knew that as he was running to this accident, that it was his only son who had been hurt. He didn't know what the accident what the accident was, but he just knew that it was me. <clears throat> and so when my dad ran up, saw what was going on, I had a It's just one of those experiences that it's it's hard to describe. But the next thing I know, it was like I was starting to float up out of my body. And I was looking down on everything that was going on. I could see um, my body laying there. I could see my coach knelt beside me. I could see my dad as he stood there. And then he kind of slowly walked away because he was in shock. I could see the puddle of blood that had even formed beside me. Another guy comes in, and he takes his belt off and wraps it around my arm And because he's actually an EMT who also worked at the glass factory. He wraps his belt around my arm to cinch in a a tourniquet absolutely as tight as he can. And when he did that, my coach didn't need to be holding my arm anymore, so he walked over to my dad and said, Jeff needs you right now. And so my dad walked back over, knelt down beside me, and he grabbed my hand and he said, let's pray. And when he said that, immediately I was back in my body again. And laying there on the floor of the factory, uh, we said the Lord's Prayer together. Um, Short while after that, um, an ambulance pulls up. They load me up on the ambulance and take me to a local hospital, which was about five to 10 minutes away. I get there, the phone calls had already been made. My my mom and stepdad, they arrived there shortly thereafter, a bunch of friends and family. From there, they loaded me onto a helicopter to fly me to Duke University Medical Center. Well, the crazy thing about that is I'm a North Carolina Tar Heel fan, so the last place I want to go is Duke University. Carolina and Duke that's like Jesus and the devil. Um they are the Blue Devils so in this in this analogy uh Duke is the devil and Jesus is Carolina, you know? So I find out that that's where they're taking me and I'm like if they find out that I'm a Carolina fan they're going to they're going to try to kill me, you know, because they already root for the devil, you know, that kind of stuff is what I'm thinking. But I'm like I'll go there if they can reattach my arm, but I'm still not going to pull for their basketball team. That's that's how, how deep my fandom runs. <laughs> so funny. they get me on the helicopter. They fly me to Duke University Medical Center. By the time they get me into the operating room at Duke University Medical Center, I had lost three-fourths of my blood. You know, I was, I was running on low. So they came in. They gave me the anesthesia for surgery. And I'm in surgery for, I believe it was 13 hours total. Um, but there was a couple instances while I was in surgery that my heart rate plummeted. There was twice that I was probably within just a, a few seconds of dying. Um, but they were able to give me a medication and it it boosted my heart rate back up again. One of the things that I remember was waking up. I looked over to see if they were able to reattach my arm. Um, but it was then that I realized that my arm was gone.
0: And it was your right arm and you were right-handed. It, what happened to you was tragic. But to me, this is where things started getting really interesting in your relationship with God. So take us there now. You're you're recovering. You're missing your arm. Uh, what happened in your mind, in your heart? And how did you start feeling about all that?
1: I, at that point, I didn't care if I lived Um, All I ever had wanted to do was play college baseball. I was four days away from my college orientation when I lost my arm. And now I'm in the hospital. And not only can I not throw a baseball, I I can't write. I can't brush my teeth. I can't dress myself. I was very angry, very mad. And a lot of my anger was directed towards God most of my anger was directed towards God because I had been in church my entire life and I'm like, how can this happen to me? Out of all the people that this could have happened to, how could this have happened to me? I went to church my entire life and this is what happens to me. And so I lashed out at God. There were times I, I literally would scream at him Why me? Answer me. Say something. Tell me why me. And I wasn't getting any answer. And so finally, I just told God, I said, listen, you go your way and I'll go mine. I'm done.
0: Now, at that particular time, would you have considered yourself a born again Christian?
1: At the time I lost my arm, if you asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said yes. Was I a Christian? No. It was one of those instances where I knew about God, but I didn't know God. I I knew about God from going to church and going to Sunday school and being a part of the youth group and things like that. There's a difference between knowing about God and having a relationship with God. I directed all of my anger towards God, but I didn't know the word of God for myself. I didn't know that in the in the Bible, in John chapter 10, verse 10, it says the enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but that Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. I'm mad at God because I thought he took my arm when I should have been mad at the enemy because he was doing exactly what Jesus said he came to do, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so I was so mad at God that... I was, I was, I just made, made it up in my mind. I'm done with him. I will go the rest of my life and I will do the best I can without him. And that's, that's how I was living my life. I'm in college. I finally went off to college. I was very angry, very mad, very bitter. I started drinking a lot because I didn't like my life. So I would drink, to try to get away. But then every time I sobered up, I was right back in the same position. So drinking didn't do anything to make it better. It only made it worse.
0: So what was the turning point?
1: What happened? The turning point was just a crazy moment that God set up where some buddies of mine said, Hey, Jeff, we're going to go play basketball. Do you want to go play? Now I'm not the best basketball player having only one arm, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually better than some people, even with only one arm, because there's some really bad basketball players (laughs) on this planet. So they asked me, they said, Jeff, do you want to go play? And I'm like, yeah, I'll go play. And so we get, and this was at Appalachian State, and there are four full court basketball courts in our recreation center. And there's a track that encircles it that people are walking and running on. So we're getting there and we're shooting, you know, before the game starts. Well, I started counting to see how many players we had. And we were going to play full court, so we needed 10 players. And so when I counted, we had 11. I said, that means one person out of these 11 is not going to get picked. I wonder who that's going to be. And so I was looking around. I was hoping there was a guy there with no arms, but there wasn't. And so (laughs) when they picked teams, sure enough, I was the guy who didn't get picked to play. And so I just grabbed a ball and went off to another goal, and I was just going to go over there and shoot by myself. And my buddies told me, they said, listen, you know, when, when the next game comes, we'll be sure that you get you get in on that game. I go off on this other goal. and I'm over there shooting by myself. And while I'm shooting, you know, it's not every day that you see a one-armed guy shooting basketball. So as people were walking and running by my court, they would see a one-armed guy shooting basketball, and they would typically glance at me and then look away, and then their mind would register what they just saw, and they would look back, I would always get a second glance. Almost everybody that came by, I got a second glance. Yeah, you are used to being stared at. I was used to it, but I I didn't like it. Uh, It was just one of those things that people see me with one arm, and they look at me, they'll typically look away, and I get the second glance. But with college students, they typically, they would look the second time, and then that was it. They wouldn't pay any more attention to me. But there was one girl who, as she was walking by my court, she looked at me, she looked away. And when she looked back at me, she stared at me like I owed her money. And I, I'm like, yeah, I know, one-armed guy shoot basketball. You don't see it every day. It's one of those things. Well, the second time she walks by my court, she stares at me the entire time she walks by. And she does it the third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. I'm like... Why are you staring at me so much? Like, I'm not going to do any tricks. I'm not going to do any one-handed cartwheels or anything like that. Just just keep walking. <laughs> I, I really started getting mad. I'm like, you're in college. This shouldn't amaze you that much. But after so many laps, then, you know, the guy in me kind of kicked in. And I'm like, wait a minute. Maybe she's checking me out. You know, maybe she's interested in me. You know, something like that. Sure. She wasn't. I didn't know it. (laughs) I didn't know it at the time, but she wasn't. And so I was thinking, well, how can I get her to come talk to me? Because I only had one arm and I didn't have the self-confidence to go talk to her. And so I decided I would move closer to the track and shoot from there. And sure enough, the first time she walked by my court, when I had moved closer to the track, she walked up to me and started talking. And I just knew that she wanted to ask me a question. And I was thinking that she was going to say, hey, do you want to go out sometime? But what she asked me was a question that changed my life forever. And she goes, would you like to go to church with me? And in my mind, I'm thinking, no, not at all. There's nothing I've got. I'm going to go my way. You go yours. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, the answer to this question is easy. And so my plan was to say no. But instead, I said, sure. I don't know why I said, sure. At this point, I'm still very angry at God. But I said, yes, her church was having a missionary come in from Africa to speak. And this missionary gets up to speak. And you have to remember, like, I'm still mad at God. And I'm actually mad at myself for sitting in church, because I thought he had taken my arm. But I'm sitting in church Almost, I felt like against my own will, but I'm sitting in church. So this missionary from Africa gets up and started talking about all the amazing things he'd seen God do on the mission field. He's like, I've seen blind eyes open. And I'm like, I don't care. He's like, I've seen deaf people able to hear again. And I'm like, I don't care. It's Like, I've seen deaf, dead people raised to life. And I was like, that's impressive, but I still don't care. He's like, I've seen arms grow out. And I was like, you saw what? Like, is is there a sign-up sheet for that? Because um, I could use two arms in here and nobody nobody in here needs three. Um, so now this guy's got my attention because I'm mad at God for taking my arm. And he's talking about a God who gives them back. So now this guy's got my undivided attention. I had already made it up in my mind. I'm going to get my arm back. I'm going to get in the car. It'll take me four hours to drive home. And I'm going to show my mom and my stepdad that I got my arm back. That was what was going in my mind. He gets up there and, and he's he was told, told all these stories. And now he's got me. And so I heard him share that verse in John 10, 10, that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy him to give us life and life more abundantly. And I was blown away by that. And I I started thinking, I was like, the God that he's talking about, and the God that I'm mad at, they don't seem to match. There's something There's something different here. And so at the end of the service, he gave an altar call for anybody who would like to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And the girl who had invited me to church, she's sitting next to me, and she said, uh, are you a Christian? And even though I had basically sworn God off and told him I was done and I was going to go my own way, I said, yeah, I think so. And she's like, well, how do, how, do you, how do you think so? And I'm like, well, I, I went to church my whole life. Um, I used to be the president of our youth group. But the, the funny thing is, is I said all that and I never said the word Jesus. Because you can go to church all you want and it doesn't make you a Christian. You can be the president of your youth group, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You could be a good person and it doesn't make you a Christian. The only thing that makes you right with God is accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I didn't know that at the time. And so when I gave my answer, she said, would you like to go forward just to be sure? And I said, yeah, it won't hurt. And so I went forward. And you have to remember, I'm going forward. Part of me is like, I'm angry at God. But part of me is like, I really like hearing what this guy has to say. So I go up front. He leads me in a sinner's prayer. There's probably 15 of us that responded to the altar. call, And I went forward and I gave my life to Jesus. And this amazing thing happened. All this anger, this bitterness. I had suffered with depression, suicidal thoughts, all these different things. And it was gone in an instant when I gave my life to Jesus. The guy who went forward, To that altar call. And the guy who went back to his seat were two completely different people. My life had been changed in an instant by the love of Jesus.
0: You got a new arm, right?
1: I wish I did. (laughs) (laughs) The the thing is, is a lot of times when I travel around and I preach and I share that part of the story that, you know, I'm going to get my arm back and I'm going to drive home and I'm going to show my mom, you know, I'm still standing up there on the platform preaching with only one arm. And I say, you know, I don't want y'all to think that I got it and then I lost it again. You know, like I'm really irresponsible with right arms. It didn't happen for me. I don't know why it didn't happen. I believe it will happen on this side of heaven, but it didn't happen that night. Was part of me a little bit disappointed? Yes. I, I would be lying if I said no, but a part of me was a little bit disappointed, but it, that disappointment was was so minute and insignificant and lasted for such a short amount of time because I knew something had changed in my life. I didn't, it was like the weight of the world had been taken off of me. It was, I felt free for the first time in my life since I had lost my arm. It's it's just hard to describe the feeling that I felt after I gave my life to Jesus. Nothing compares.
0: At some point after that remarkable transformation in your life, God called you into ministry. Tell me something about that part right there, that there's some significant things that happened that really affected you. Give me a little bit on that.
1: After I gave my life to Jesus, I started attending a campus ministry at Appalachian State, and we started going out. We would do youth events, and at one of these events, one of the leaders said, Jeff, would you mind sharing your testimony?" And I love this guy so much. He had been so such a key part in helping me grow up in Jesus. I didn't even know what a testimony meant. I knew what it meant in court. I knew how you were supposed to testify in front of a, a, a judge, but I didn't know what a church testimony meant. And he said, just stand up and tell people what Jesus has done in your life. And I'm like, now that's something that I can do. So the first time I ever spoke was in front of 200 kids, I was so nervous I couldn't hold the microphone in my hand. I would have given myself a black eye because I was shaking so bad. But I just talked a little bit about what Jesus had done in my life and just how my life had changed for the better. And when I got done, um, the guy who helped me, who had been such a key in, in my early walk with Jesus, he said, now you heard what Jesus did in Jeff's life. If there's anybody in here and you would like to give your life to Jesus, come forward. And out of all these 200 kids, one 13-year-old boy got up and came down to the front and gave his life to Jesus. And then I prayed a prayer that changed my life um, in that moment. It changed my life for eternity. I, and it's a really spiritual prayer. I'm sure it's in the Bible somewhere. I said, God, that was really cool. If you want me to do that again, I will. That was my prayer. Yeah, what are
0: those real spiritual prayers?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's in some of Paul's writings. So I started getting opportunities to share, to share with people, and my life changed at one event. That it, it changed that night when I gave my life to Jesus. It changed that night when I shared my story for the first time. But. My mind was blown. I was asked to speak at an event in Taylorsville, North Carolina in 1996. I'm one of the people that's speaking, but I also, I was a baby Christian still at the time. I was still learning about Jesus. And I was one of those really, really powerful preachers who showed up to preach and didn't even have his Bible with him and i realized it and i went to one of my friends i was like hey i need to borrow your bible because i'm not sure what i'm going to talk about yet so i take her bible i go off i sit at this picnic table and i'm sitting there praying god i don't know what i was thinking i don't know why i didn't prepare anything will you please tell me what to talk about and i'm flipping through the pages of the bible and i'm not getting anything and finally god just speaks to me in just a way that that god only god can and he let me know that by the time I got up there to speak, I would know exactly what to say and that I would and and I would speak it. And so I was like, all right, God, I trust you. That's what I'm going to do. So as the service is starting and this is a big event, there are I believe they said there were 700 kids there that night. As the event is starting, I still have no idea what I'm supposed to talk about. At the beginning of the service, they started lighting. They had these seven candles that were on this table right in front of the platform. They started lighting these seven candles, and I didn't know why. And so the one of the girls who was responsible for putting on the event, I asked her, I said, what are those seven candles for? And she said that in the last six months at that time, they had had seven teenagers die by either suicide or car accident. Oh, my goodness. And so they were kind of lighting it as a, as a memorial for those kids. And, like, when she said that, I started crying. And that was unusual for me because I was never really one to cry. The first time I remember crying after, my, after losing my arm was when I'd been in the hospital for about four or five days. And I was crying because I knew I couldn't play baseball anymore. So I started crying, and before long, I went from crying to sobbing uncontrollably. I had my head between my knees, and I was bawling my eyes out. And even though I was only a baby Christian, I prayed another one of those super spiritual prayers. And I said, God, what's up? You know, that's, that's, that's really spiritual right there. God. Oh,
0: you bet. What's up? Yeah, that's a very good prayer, though,
1: by the way. <laughs> I said, God, what's up? and in that moment he spoke to me again and it was just one of those still small voices where god said you always ask me why me after you lost your arm and i'm like yeah i did i said why me all the time god why me i gave god a list of candidates who were more qualified to lose an arm than i was <laughs> you know god but he asked me a question he said you never ask me why I let you live that day. I said, okay, God, well, I'll ask you right now. Why did you let me live that day? Why didn't I just go on to heaven to be with you? And this is one of those moments that will echo in my mind, in my heart, in my soul for eternity. I heard God speak, like with my ears, to the point that I even asked the people sitting around me, I said, did you hear that? Nobody heard anything, but I heard God speak just like you can hear my voice right now. And he spoke to me and he said, if you would have died that day, you would have gone to hell.
0: My goodness.
1: And it, Grandpa Jimmy, it floored me.
0: You had no idea that you were destined for hell.
1: Everybody in my high school knew me as the good Christian. I went to church every... I have a pen. To this day, I still have a little a pen that I can wear on my lapel that I got for going to church three years in a row without missing a single Sunday.
0: You proved that doing all the right things means nothing. It's not what you do. It's who lives in you.
1: Exactly you can do all the good works in the world and it's rubbish without Jesus. I in my senior year of high school just to drive the point home, my senior year of high school I took a class where our teacher gave us a list of 18 things and we were supposed to list them in importance, number 1 being the most important thing, number 18 being the least most important thing. And it could be anything from having a family to having a satisfying career, to having lots of money, and out of all of her students in all of her classes that year, only one person put that eternal life and salvation was the most important thing to them, and that was me. Even though eternal life and salvation was the most important thing to me, that still didn't make me a Christian. The only thing that guarantees any of us eternal life And salvation is accepting Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, period. This is
0: something everybody needs to hear. I believe there are a lot of people walking around who kind of think they're Christians, but they have no idea. It comes down to receiving Jesus in your heart.
1: Without Jesus, nothing else
0: matters, period. So what happened? Here you are. God tells you why he lets you live. Go from there real quick.
1: (laughs) So obviously at that point, I knew exactly what I was supposed to talk about when I got up in front of that group. So I got up in front of that group and I shared, you know, a little bit about how I'd lost my arm. I don't remember a whole lot of what I said. I know I would have talked about losing my arm, but then I talked about, I was on my way to hell and I had no idea And there are people that are in this gymnasium, and the same thing is happening to you. So when I got done, I told him, I said, listen, do not leave this room tonight without accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Another guy got up and spoke after me. And at the end of the night, we saw 70 kids respond to make Jesus their personal Lord and Savior.
0: Was that service that night kind of the beginning of your ministry?
1: I knew my life was different from then on because when I saw those kids respond to Jesus, I prayed another prayer that is still affecting my, my life to this day. I said, God, I will share this every day for the rest of my life. If it will keep just one person from going to hell. And that was the night. Now, did I know at the time I'm accepting a call to ministry? No. At that time, I was saying, God, I want to get keep as many people from going to hell as possible. I have worked other jobs. I've worked secular jobs. So that night, I prayed a prayer still impacting my life to this day. And I said, God, I will do this every day for the rest of my life if it keeps one person from going to hell. I didn't know that I was accepting a call into the ministry. I just knew I wanted to keep people from going to hell by any means possible. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I, I've, I've shared in front of thousands of people. I've shared my story one-on-one. I've I've led hundreds of people to Jesus in one setting. I've led one person to Jesus emailing back and forth. I've I've led complete strangers to Jesus over the phone when somebody gives me their phone number.
0: If that was the beginning of really the beginning of your ministry, just just to lead people to Jesus. So, what is your ministry called?
1: You could, <laughs> I guess, you could call it many things. It's called Jeff Bardale Ministries. That's good. That's a good way. Just one L. But I also it it's also called Bardale Ministries because my wife does ministry as well um she she considers herself kind of my support team but she's she's a preacher <laughs> yeah, well there you go out preach the word on so
0: you guys can tag team if you want to
1: and when I go travel somewhere I always love it when she's with me ninety nine times out of a hundred she is because I'll do these altar calls and we'll see hundreds of people respond to to give their lives to jesus and I'll always see my wife with one or two people over in the corner talking, praying with people, like really making those strong one-on-one connections, and she's amazing.
0: It's nice when you're a team uh, together like that, ministering together. That is really a blessing of God. So you have also written a book about this recently, is that correct?
1: I did. I just released a book um, toward the end of 2020. I mean something good had to come out of 2020 so I figured hey why not my book.
0: That's a good thing.
1: <laughs> something good came out of 2020 and so so I titled my book If I Would Have Died That Day and it's my whole story. There's there's things in there that you know we don't have time to get into today that I I go into full detail um you know maybe as a little teaser for your listeners I talk about breaking a world record uh twice
0: Long driving in golf, you hold the world record for a one arm man, don't you?
1: I I did. I broke a world record uh, for the longest drive of a golf ball hit with one arm. Um, Again, it wasn't to make my name known. It was to open doors to be able to preach Jesus. And that's what's happened. Um, I've been able to get into schools and share motivational messages. And then we typically will invite the students to another event. And, I mean, I have done events where we've seen probably 90% of the people that show up to the event respond to give their lives to Jesus.
0: Jeff, that is absolutely amazing to have that kind of response. So you know that God is working through you to reach the hearts of these people. There is absolutely no doubt about that. How how can people get a hold of you? How can they get their book? What, what do they do?
1: If, if they want to reach out to me or if they want to get a copy of my book, Uh, They can go to my website, which is jeffbardell.com. And again, Bardell is B-A-R-D-E-L.com. On there, on the homepage, you can see a a picture of my book. You can click there. It'll take you straight to the shop. Um, You can see my itinerary. You can see if I'm coming to an area near you anytime soon. And if I'm not, you can always invite me to come speak in your area. (laughs) There you go. go I will go anywhere, and I will preach to anybody uh, because – And it's not about making Jeff Bardell's name known. It's about making Jesus Lord over as many people as possible.
0: Well, I tell you what, Jeff, what a privilege it has been to have you on this program today. And I know you're going to touch a lot of hearts with this message. People need to understand what real Christianity is. And uh, you've really expressed that, that you can do all the right things, but if you haven't received Jesus, you've done nothing. I'm so thankful that you came and, and told your story today. So I also want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, you too have a story probably, and it's probably better than you think. If you'd like to tell it, be sure and contact me. Subscribe to this podcast if you like it. I'd appreciate that. And you can reach me at mygrandpajimmy.com. That's the website. Or email me at mygrandpajimmy at com. So, Jeff, thank you again for being here, sir.
1: Thank you for the opportunity and God bless you and your listeners.
0: We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.